This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. Did you feel secure? Did you feel cared for? Did you feel comforted? In those instances, you would have healthy attachments. But if you experienced rejection or potentially indifference from your primary caregivers, especially when you were in pain, you fell down, you were feeling sad, all of those things, then you might have more of an anxious or an avoidant kind of attachment style. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we'll discuss what statistics say about renting in Toronto. We'll learn about the unexpected cause of wear and tear on the body. We'll find out about the top tips for summer entertaining. And lastly, we'll hear about the attachment theory of relationships. But first, a little bit of business. Support for today's show comes from the Benvenuto Group. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will also deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. Mitchell Abrahams is the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums and developed condominium and apartment projects. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Today, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to do a little bit of fortune telling today. You can join me. We'll gaze into the crystal ball. We're going to look at some objective criteria that I did not come up with. These are statistics that a local real estate website has come up with regarding rental rates in Toronto, Ontario, and Canada. And I thought it would be fun to sort of look at those statistics and see what we think they might mean in terms of rentals and and where the country's going and, and what we're noticing ourselves just in the marketplace. What do you think? Let's try our best. All right. Okay. So stat number one. Five of the 10 of the highest priced markets in Canada are in the city of Toronto. The following rankings are Toronto is the number one highest ranking cost for rental. Etobicoke's number two. North York is five. East York is eight. And Scarborough is 10. And just to round things out, Richmond Hill, Markham, Brampton, and Mississauga are also in the top 10. In fact, only Vancouver at number four is the only non-GTA top 10 rental market in the country. What do you make of that? It's the only market with a championship winning basketball team. Yeah, you got that right. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. They don't even have a team anymore. So yeah, that's one thing. So you think it's all basketball related or is there something else going on? I think it's pretty clear that, first of all, the gain in population, both from immigration and from people staying and the job market, is clearly a big driver for this market. Yeah, It's just, things are going pretty well. We keep hearing the sort of rumblings of uh, recessions, of rate cuts in the states, of these type of things. But I think, in general, when you look around Toronto, things are quite vibrant. You see office buildings being built. To me, that's always a sign that uh, people are hiring. 
both in Mississauga and in uh, in Toronto. You see uh, all kinds of interesting new businesses coming from uh, different markets to Toronto. You see people expanding here. These are all signals, and I don't think surprising ones, that people recognize this as a great place to live. You know, we were joking about the Raptors, but uh, you look around at the sort of diversity of this market, and I think that internationally we're continuing to build a really good reputation as a place to come to for families and for for professionals and for people all over the world looking for a better life. So it's not surprising to me that the pressure is coming from, you know, what it always comes from, from demand. There's just a lot of demand for housing, and that's, I'm sure, what's driving pricing. What surprised me uh, is that only one area in British Columbia made the top 10. When you hear about what the housing prices were in Vancouver as compared to Toronto, I'm certainly comparable, right? Mm-hmm. You would have thought the spin-off effect would have been that there was a lot of people that are forced to rent in, in Vancouver. And I would have thought that rental rates in and around there, and I don't know all the neighborhoods there, but like it would have been similar to the situation we have in the GTA. But I guess that's not the case. And I wonder, I wonder what that's caused by. Yeah, I'm far from an expert, but you know, I'm sure part of it is that you know downtown Vancouver is sort of constrained. There's no more room for uh, for development. Prices are very high. But once you cross the bridge, there's far more available land for urban sprawl. Okay, and that may be part of it. And again. I also think when you look, you know, there's big pressure in downtown Vancouver, but there's nowhere near the same population. Right. Um, so when you start getting to the suburbs, you don't see the same number of people looking for housing. That makes sense. So here's another statistic to throw at you. In the month of April 2019, there were 14,697 new housing completions in Canada, uh, and that was the highest total of the year. So, you know, all this talk about recession and the fact that construction, you know, isn't uh, going on at the pace that it used to, uh, it's not bearing out in that statistic. I think interest rates remain low, and that's still a sort of a a key issue in terms of housing affordability in most places. So I'm not sure that all markets feel the same story. And and I think... uh, you know, and we're going to talk about it a little bit afterwards. But you know, even in the rental market in, in in Toronto, in some ways, it's a tale of two markets. You know, there is uh, lots of new development taking place. The challenge in our market continues to be: how do we bring on supply or deal with supply issues at, at a more affordable end of the market? Right. Okay. Here's the next one, which I found a little bit curious. According to the May 2019 rent report from Rentals.ca and Bullpen Research and Consulting, the average and median rents for all property types in Canada have decreased by about 2%, which they attributed to the smaller average units for lease in April. But in Toronto, it only decreased by 0.5. And this is for like a one-bedroom unit. And it actually went up by 0.5 for two bedrooms. So it seems like Toronto is an island as compared to the rest of the country with respect to rental rates. It's hard to comment on things, you know, with that amount of detail. You yeah. Know, like, cause yeah. I, I'm not sure what sort of makes up the calculation of uh, sort of smaller fluctuations in vacancies and in rates, rental rates across the country. I see Toronto more in, in terms of, uh, you know, a focal point. Clearly, there is a tremendous amount of demand. Let me give you a a little story that I think is sort of telling Mm -hmm. as to the state of our market. We're doing a project in town that is seeing the demolition 
and replacement of uh, rental housing on the site. So basically, we we have a bunch of you know obsolete older rental buildings that are low-rise buildings that are being demolished, uh, and people need to relocate for the period of time right. uh, until we rebuild the replacement rental building that will house them afterwards and the balance of that site. And part of what we've been doing is working with those residents to try to help them find alternatives of where to live in the interim. Yep. So I've been very exposed over the last number of months to trying to find people, you know, apartments in the uh, 1000 to $1,400 price range. Oish. And yeah. it is a really, really hard thing to do in this market. You know, in what used to be the sort of the main part of the market, it's just tight, and people need to be prepared to go to areas further from town. They need to go to smaller units, and it's just not an easy thing, and that's the challenge. In this case, I mean, it's a temporary thing, and people will move back into a brand-new building with much better amenities and uh, building services and systems, but it just was very eye-opening to see actually how tight it is, and some of the things that I saw really were subpar, and most of what was uh, available really was challenging. And it continues to be a good question as to, you know, because condo rentals are one thing, but they're expensive. And and we're going to have to build a lot of new rental in order to take the pressure off the older stock, which are well-located, well-maintained older buildings that lend themselves more to offering rents that are uh, affordable for a good section of the population. And I think the quickest way to get there will be, you know, with uh, the building of new market rental, because there are people out there looking for it and who can afford it. And that to me is uh, my hope over the midterm as to how we sort of loosen up some of the market. Well, you know, I'm wondering whether or not there's a complete correlation to the single family dwelling market at the upper end and the rental market. Because what I'm seeing is like, I can only speak to my neighborhoods and the neighborhoods that I walk around in. But let's just say I live central Toronto, uh, which means there's always, you know, when you're between the subway lines, there's always a premium for those properties, particularly single family dwellings. But in my neighborhood, you know, when things were really hot a couple of years ago, houses were being sold, you know, you'd see the sign coming soon and it would be sold within two days, you know, like within the first night of it going on the market, you know, there was bidding wars and, and then the property was sold. Whereas this spring and summer, and I don't, I don't know what's causing it, houses are sitting. It seems like everybody's taken a step back. And what's really interesting is interest rates have actually gone back down to what they were back in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I know that because I just re-upped on my mortgage and I'm actually paying, I'm going to be paying less than I was for the last five years. So interest rates are low. Uh, and as far as I know, there hasn't been an influx of single family dwellings and yet properties are sitting and, you know, and, and, is it, and, and have you, have you taken the time to look at pricing? Like are people, yeah, no, pricing, I have. And are pricing expectations in your neighborhood out of line with what you think they should be? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, you know, mine is a transitional neighborhood. It, it, it's a neighborhood where there's, there used to be a lot of bungalows on 40 foot lots, which were being torn down and, and McMansions were being put up. So there was, there's two types of properties. One where it's basically raw land value. And then the other part of the market is maybe houses that have been built within the last 10 years, which, you know, fully take up the space of a 40 foot lot. And, you know, we're definitely, I would consider luxury, uh, you know, not for still a Rosedale type prices, but certainly next tier. 
Mm-hmm. And the pricing that I'm seeing for the building lots is ridiculous, but for these houses that are 10 or 15 years old, mm, prices are actually lower than I would have expected them to be. Well, you know, I understand very much the risk of uh, of someone looking at a, at a house yeah. and saying, I'm going to tear it down and build a new house. Because yeah. it doesn't happen overnight, right? So yep. you're actually buying today, and you're and as a builder... Or even as a sort of homeowner, you're saying, this is a house that I'm going to build over the next 18 uh, months. Right. And what is that market going to look like? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that people are taking a step back and saying, you know, we're in the uh, probably the 14th of a nine inning game um, yeah. as far as having yeah. had, you know, uh, years of a really good real estate market. And, uh, and you know, since 2008, we've been on a slow sort of, uh, we haven't had a, the markets, you know, explode um, since 2008, but we've had a steady recovery. And Toronto, uh, sort of as an aberration compared to a lot of North America, really didn't get that hit in 2008. Nope. So you could probably, you know, go back to the, you know, late 90s where we've sort of been moving ahead every year. And I think at some point people start saying, when are we going to get a pullback? And then you start debating, what would that mean? I think in general, people's consensus is for this part of the world, we're going to see slower uh, but steady growth. Yep. And, um, you know, and in some ways, pricing was based on uh, more aggressive growth expectations. People were buying futures. And I think people are just taking a breather and saying, really, what can I afford and how much is too much? And I think that's healthy. Yeah, I do too. I just find it curious though, because, you know, with interest rates so low, the, the calculations are the same, right? Like you could lock in for five years right now and really nobody's planning ahead more than five years. If you have a right. family, you know, your needs may change, they may not. But if, if I told you, 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 you would know what your mortgages are going to be for the next five years, mm-hmm. you know, you, you could make some pretty solid decisions. I'm looking at it a different way. I actually think people are more nervous about their jobs. Because I think I think if you knew that you could pay X dollars for for your cost of living, and you know presumably these houses, you know if you're already in that range, you've got a good income. I think it's people are more insecure about their employment. That's what I think it is. I wonder if that's the case for people who aren't, for people who are feeling pretty stable but sort of nervous about the market. You know, I, I always go back to first of all these decisions. Uh, lots of people for a long time made decisions about real estate with a very long horizon, and then all of a sudden people changed and said, "Oh, this is an asset where I can make money over the short term. Yeah. I can buy yep. a condo in pre-sale and sell it uh, at occupancy and make money." And I'm not sure that that's really where housing falls into the sort of in- investment spectrum. But I go back, and I think one of the brightest uh, guys in our country uh, who talks about this stuff is uh, Benjamin Tal, who's the chief yep. economist for CIBC. Yes. And, you know, I think he's been saying for quite some time, there is a fair bit of risk in the marketplace, and, and that is a reason to sort of uh, sort of be smart uh, in terms of your investment decisions. But Canadians are typically conservative, yes. particularly when compared to Americans. And his comment this year at uh, when he spoke to sort of some of the guys from the development industry at a, at a dinner the bank throws annually was, yeah, we may see fluctuations up and down, and it's hard to call what they are. But given the macro sort of uh, things driving the Toronto market, if you look back in 10 or 15 years from now, you're going to realize that prices today 
were still reasonable compared to where they could go. Because there are pressures as the economy continues to grow in terms of size and vibrancy that are going to make, you know, just the economics of it. That Toronto is going to be a valuable place to own real estate in the future because population growth expectations uh, are uh, are quite high. And if you add a couple more million people to the equation, it just makes sense that this is uh, not a bad place to invest if you have a long-term horizon. Yeah, I, I think you may be right. I think the answer might be we are actually the world-class city uh, that we were aspiring to be or doubted that we were for the last five years. Uh, I think we're finally there and our economy is diversified enough that uh, it can sort of weather these economic storms. And I, and I think maybe 2008 is, is an example of that. You know, we, we actually came through that probably better than anybody else. Well, it's nice to get there without bravado, because uh, most places that sort of claim to be world-class, uh, instead of just aspiring to be, uh, you know, sort of uh, usually have a few uh, bubbles burst on them along the way. But we seem scared to say it, but we're slowly getting there, and we're getting there for a lot of the right reasons. We're, we're trying to develop a open door to uh, attracting new businesses. We've got diversity that's attracting great people from all over the world. I just, uh, I think long term for, you know, it's always sort of uh, silly to look at your house as a short term investment. But I think for people who are working hard and uh, working on the Canadian dream of building equity in their home, I don't see a reason to panic at this point. And I don't think with a long term horizon, there's going to be one. Well, that's good news. And unfortunately, that is all the time we have. We're going to end on a high note. We'll hear back from you next month, right? Look forward to it. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the unexpected cause of wear and tear on the body, on the tonic. Alamax Canada is the company that delivers real, bioactive, stabilized Allison. Using only the freshest garlic from Spain, Alamax is the trusted source for a high-quality and effective Allison supplement. The manufacturers of Alamax have dedicated their time to researching this fascinating plant and all of its antimicrobial and antibacterial benefits. To fight infection and stay well, take Alamax. For more information, visit Alamax.ca. Vital Directives is a center committed to helping people ignite their innate healing power and remove the barriers of fear that keep them in pain. Through changing their client's mindset and teaching them to connect with their body, the Vital Directives step-by-step process helps them focus, feel safe, and get immediate relief. Their process involves removing the physical limitations induced by chronic pain while creating personalized, high-level self-care and preventative measures. They believe that significantly reducing chronic pain is just the first step. Through powerful physical exercises and mindset shifts, coupled with solid support system, they inspire people to transform from the inside out. For more information, visit their website at vitaldirectives.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Roxandra Mitria is the founder of Vital Directives, a leading center for vibrant and healthy living, preventative health, wellness, growth, and rejuvenation. At Vital Directives, they want you to awaken your body and celebrate life. Roxandra has an unwavering belief in each person's inherent capacity for healing. Having had her own experience with limitations created by chronic pain, she created a unique process that allowed her to heal her body. 
Roxandra has dedicated her professional life to teaching her clients the process that will ignite their innate healing capacity, significantly reducing their chronic pain while developing skills to create and maintain pain-free active lives. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, last month we discussed healing by focusing on joints. Today we're going to learn the obvious and not so obvious causes of wear and tear on our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Because I think it's helpful for people to understand, you know, what are they doing that's creating the pain? I mean, obviously, if you have a sports injury, it's obvious. You know, you twisted your ankle, you yes. you fell funny or, you know, those are easy ones. But, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but sometimes we're doing things that are causing stress to our body and we may not even be aware of it. Yes. Okay. So let's start with the apparent and more obvious causes of stress on the body and wear and tear. What would mm-hmm. that be? Well, as you mentioned, an injury. Right. You fall down and you, you know, you break an an- you ankle or, yeah, no, yeah, that's, that's an injury that creates some wear and tear. Another one can be a malformation of the hip. That's something that someone would be born with. Sure. Also with age, yes, there is some wear and tear. Uh, oh, that's what most people <laughs> think about that. Yeah. But that's not, that doesn't have to be that way. Now. I don't know. You know, you don't know? <laughs> I don't know. I'm in my 50s and, and you know, I, I wake up with aches and pains that I didn't have, you know, five years ago even. Mm-hmm. And, and and I'm active and I'm putting stress on the body. But mm-hmm. I kind of feel, you know. It I, doesn't have to well, be that well, way. Okay. I kind of feel like my warranty is my warranty is over and, you know. They're going to have to find spare parts and bionics no, for me. No, no, you you've know, got good news I, for me. I, yes, because for example, I have clients who have been with me for fifteen or twenty years. Okay, and it's not that they're still at vital directives because their bodies are hurting. No, that that's been cleared a long time ago. But this has become what we do there together has become part of their way of life. It's a lifestyle. So yeah. yes. So their sessions at vital directives are there to undo all the other things that are creating stress throughout the week in their bodies. So let's talk about that. What mm-hmm. are the other things that are going on that maybe our listeners aren't aware of that's going on? Well, the biggest Things that cause wear and tear are, you won't expect this. Okay. Dehydration. Yeah. And stress. Okay. Well, stress, I kind of understand. Let's talk about dehydration for a moment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, as you know, we are largely made of water. Yeah. 75, 85%, whatever the percentage, it's high up there, right? So, this means that every single structure in our body has a water content. Even our bones have a water content. Right. Now, most people don't drink enough water. Yes, guilty as charged. So they get dehydrated. And water doesn't mean we just need to drink water when it's hot outside. We need to drink a lot of water during the winter months. We have so many long winters where our heating systems are cranked up. The air is a lot drier. We lose a lot of water through our skin. Yes. So people walk around with high levels of dehydration. Now, dehydration affects everything in the body, but it affects the connective tissue, the fascia. Remember, we were talking about it last, um, month, yeah. last month. So now with this fascial system, I give my clients um, an image of this. Okay. So, you know, if you leave um, a sponge full of water in the middle of a room on a 24-hour period that sponge dries up, right? Yes. Well, our bodies are the same. We are like an organic living sponge from yes. that perspective. We lose water all, all the time. Now, Just by breathing. I mean, your, your breath... Just by breathing. Uh, your breath 
is where you lose a lot of your your, yes. your moisture. Yes, uh, and there's nothing you can do to stop that. That's no, just, that's just the way that's it is. How we, yes, that's how we are built. So. If we get dehydrated, the connective tissue in the body, and you know, even the skin, do you know how when you're more dehydrated, how your skin gets drier, where the connective tissue does the same thing? So now imagine kind of like a leather suit, like a catwoman suit, you know, with the face and the fingers and the toes all covered in one. Like latex. Like latex. Okay. Now imagine living in a suit that's five sizes too small. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when I don't watch my weight. <laughs> my pants are too tight. But that's not what you're talking about. No, I'm talking about the the way the connective tissue, the, this fascia. It constricts. It, it constricts. So now this doesn't constrict just beneath the skin. The skin. Remember, we're talking this, the fascia is going everywhere in the body. Right. Now it constricts everywhere in the body. So this means the joints become more compressed. There's less space in them. The discs in the spine become compressed too. So even the discs in the spine, their their health and well, good functioning depends on their water content. Right. So now we create a lot of wear and tear in the body, a lot of narrowing of joint space, a lot of rubbing of surfaces just through the, the tension created by dehydration. So if we hydrate more, that's going to help us mm-hmm. with our pain issues and our mobility issues. That's yes. must be part of what yes. you're saying. If we're not. Yes. Okay. So uh, moving on from hydration, let's talk about stress, which is the other mm-hmm. unknown factor or less known factor. <laughs> less known factor. Yes. What happens with the stress levels, we are equipped to deal with stress. And we should have stress in our lives. We, yes. It's necessary. Yes. Yes. It allows us to grow, to transform, to reach for more and so on. And we have everything it takes to deal with that type of stress. But we're not equipped to deal with stress that is sustained for months and months and months. Right. But when we have a stress response to something, there is a certain surge of chemicals, of hormones released in the body. There's the stress hormones. Yes, the body is equipped to deal with them on like, you know, on a regular basis, but in, in short bursts. Yes. The body is not equipped to maintain high levels of cortisol, let's say. It's called the death syndrome. It's a stress hormone continuously for weeks and months and months. Right. So that affects the connective tissue even more than dehydration. Okay. And so that creates, again, um, a change at the level of the fascia that affects the joints, affects the muscles, affects the discs in the spine, and so on. So everything is being changed by stress and dehydration. And from my experience working with my clients, as they start to deal with their stress better and remove the things that can be removed that cause them stress and change the way they think about others that cannot be removed, increase their level of hydration, their um, discomfort decreases a lot just through through these two changes, let alone all the other mechanical, physical changes and the exercises and so on that we're doing together. So it's paramount in any healing process to look at the stress levels in one's life and the uh, levels of hydration. Right. And, and again... I'm going to stress the point. Uh, we're talking about chronic stress. I mean, like the fight or flight syndrome is helpful to us. You know, you have to look both ways before you cross the road so you don't get hit by a car. But if you're constantly looking both sides of everywhere as you're walking along and every mm-hmm. day, 
constantly wary, that's what that's what's gonna break it down. And and I presume yes. you espouse, you know, mindfulness and and yoga and other stress uh, mm-hmm, relieving mm-hmm. practices. Yes, and, uh, and, and meditation, and sometimes just removing things that can be removed. You know, the things that we do because we believe that we have to do, but. You know, going places where we don't want to go and we just go out of obligation. And when we go against ourselves, you know, there are certain things in all our lives that can be removed. Yeah, some Um, things you can't, though. I mean, if you have to go to that party you don't want to go to, you mm -hmm. still have to go to the party. Your (laughs) your wife makes you go. Trust you. Trust me on that one. You still have to go to the party. So you have to learn how to deal with the party without making yourself crazy in the long run, right? Yes. So it's we were talking a couple months ago about the way all these things work together, the physical things with the mindset things, with the emotional intelligence things. So they all work together. Yeah, it's a holistic approach. It's a holistic approach. Okay, so we only have time to cover one more subject, and that is misalignment, because I think you referred to that mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about, you know, the the hips and the and the legs and all that. So yes. w- what is misalignment, and, and what does it do to the body? Well, misalignment is, well, <laughs> the body is designed to function properly in one way. You know, the joints have their surfaces, they have different planes and angles that they right. move through and so on. And we sit around all day and we ruin that, right? We ruin that. Yeah. And uh, we ruin that through even through silly things. You know how men sometimes carry their wallets on their back pocket in yeah. their jeans and then one hip sits on the pocket on the wallet. Yeah. So that creates a misalignment of the hips that then influences the lower spine and the the hip joints and so on. But you're not advocating a purse, are you? Because I'm not going to have a purse. No, I'm not advocating a purse. I'm just advocating... I I just put my credit cards in the front pocket. Is that okay? That is great. My wife gives me trouble about that. She goes, you need a wallet. I said, I don't want a wallet. Sorry, Mm -hmm. I'm going off on a tangent. No, a wallet is good. Just don't sit with one sit bone on it to create a discrepancy in your hips. (laughs) So basically, if we came to you, you'd you'd have all sorts of advice on on how to properly align and if we're sitting for an extended period to sit properly and not slouch for example while you're on radio recording and leaning back in your chair right (laughs) yes all of those fantastic unfortunately that's all the time we have will you join us again next month i would love to fantastic we've got to take a short break but when we return we'll learn all about summer entertaining on the tonic the tonic is brought to you by purely natural Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. 
My next guest, Carolyn Tanner Cohen, is owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show, Carolyn. Hi, Jamie. So the warm weather is finally here. And finally. That, yeah. And that means many of us will be entertaining. Yes, I've already started doing using my barbecue. Yeah. Whether it's drinks on the patio, a picnic, or a full-blown party, you're here to share some great summer hosting hits. Yes, absolutely. So think about your summer hosting as a little bit of a theater or a play. For sure. Okay. And you need a start and a middle and an end. Okay. okay. But you want to be in the play. Yes. And you don't want to be sitting in the kitchen the whole night or running back and forth to the kitchen all night. And also you want to be able to do this seamlessly. Yes. And over and over and over again without stress and not feel like, oh, I can't have people over for dinner. I don't have anything to make. Right. Okay. So have it laid out like a good writing essay. So we're, pl- we're talking about planning, right? We're talking about planning. But it really is. It's a lot of planning in your head. Yeah. And it's a lot of planning at the beginning of the summer to be able to execute stuff all summer long. Right. Okay. So I think of it in four categories. Mm-hmm. Drinks. Yep. First course. Yep. Second course. And then dessert. Okay. And if you have little bits and pieces to make up a dinner party, then you've got it made for the whole summer. Right. So let's start with drinks. Okay. So drinks. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about drinks for a bit. Okay, great. Because we don't do a ton of entertaining, but when we do, I'm the drink master, and particularly for summer, I've noted certain things. So if you're if yep. you're outside, yep. the worst thing is to go in and out of your house to go get glasses, to go get ice, to go get this, to go get that. Yes. So here's here's some workarounds. Okay. okay? Yeah. Make sure you've got a cooler that yep. you can bring out, and you either fill it with ice or however you want to do it. Okay. And you prep ahead and you get, you know, whether you're using plastic or, or glass, I like making large batch drinks. So, and keeping it simple. If you want to have an open bar yeah. for your guests, that's one thing. Okay. But I would recommend a red, a white yeah. for wines, maybe some beers or ciders that you have on hand and that you replenish brands that everybody seems to like. And then if you're going to make mixed drinks, you do it in a pitcher. As, okay. oppo- as opposed to making offers to everybody, I'll make this for you. So I'll like everybody has the same, you know, martini that night. Right, exactly. Okay. And, and, you know, there's lots of summer drinks that you can do. Like, you know, there are drinks that tend towards the warmer weather, like Pims or vodka tonics or... Margarita. Margaritas, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some sours that could even work or Chaprinas, stuff with mint and lime are always a big hit with soda. What if you're really simple, though, like me, when it comes to drinks? Okay, so a simple, you know, like even a rum and coke, you know, Cuba Libra. If you if you wanna if you wanna make a simple drink that is going to be uh, great for the masses, then you know your good old screwdriver could work for you too. You know, two or three ingredients. Now, if you're going to make a screwdriver, use fresh orange juice as opposed right. to frozen, and it's going to be that much better. Okay, um, and make sure that you're fully stocked. That that's what I, I love would that. Say. Yeah, you know what I do sometimes actually, and I'm not a big drinks maker. Right, I always have red and white and call it a day because I really am not a great mixed drinks maker. But I like to make margaritas in the summer, but sort of more healthy-ish margaritas. Okay, so I'll take an orange and a lemon. Make sure it's washed, no sticker. Yeah. Okay. I'll put it the whole thing in the blender, get rid of some of the seeds from the lemon first, and then with the alcohol, and then blend it with ice. And it's sort of like a slushy margarita instead right. of your traditional one. Got it. Tequila, of course. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, that's te- a good blended drink. Te- tequila is a good clean liqueur. Yeah. And I would say this, you know, like don't mix your alcohol. If you want to keep everybody from feeling logy the next day, even if you're going with something like a bourbon or a whiskey, which tends to create more hangovers, if you don't mix your alcohols and you sort of keep it clean in that respect, you're probably better off. Yes, for sure. All right, I'm let's totally get let's get to why you're okay. here. Let's start with yeah. the food. Okay. So I really like to serve a lot of appetizers. Yep. Okay. And I don't make a meal out of them because people are always looking for the main course. Even if they're not hungry, they're looking for the main course. Right. But I do serve a substantial amount and I tend to do appetizers of about an hour, an hour and a half even. Okay. I know that's a really long time, yep. but people like to mill around and have your drinks, Jamie. Yep. And I'll be coming over for your drinks this summer for sure. Yep. Okay. So this is what I like to have in the fridge. And I start making this even now, like in, in the beginning of June, I'll do this. Right. Okay. Oh, yep. I'll make a couple sides of salmon's worth of gravlocks, okay? okay? And feel free to go on my website. There's a great recipe for beet gravlocks, and I'll make a bunch of it, freeze it, and then when I want to use a piece, maybe I'll take a pound of made gravlocks out of the freezer, slice it up into thin slices, and then I have an easy appetizer that's already ready. What you could do with your gravlocks is you could put it on crackers with a little bit of uh, honey mustard or dill mustard, yep. or what I love is I'll chop it up, Mix it with some Dijon mustard, some extra dill, some red onion, and I'll make a Gravlox tartare. And I say tartare in little egg, in little air quotes. Yeah. And the reason why I serve Gravlox tartare as opposed to salmon tartare is because I want to be outside for the party, and I don't want to be running inside to get ice, to put the raw salmon on ice. I want to be able to just leave it outside for the hour or two hours. And once it's cured, then it, it, it's, it's fine cooked. to sit out. Yeah. yeah, it's cooked. And then whatever you don't eat, you could get rid of. But you're not rushing into the kitchen and you're working worried about, you know, it going bad outside. The other thing I love to have is slow roasted tomatoes. Yep, we okay. make those too. Yep. Yeah. You could do those with cherry tomatoes or you could do with plum tomatoes. We actually use the smaller ones. We find yeah. it better. Yep. Yeah. So you just cut those, sprinkle them with salt, pepper, a little olive oil, maybe a little balsamic, slow roast them in a 300 degree oven for a few hours. Right. Then you could freeze those. Those are great with a little bit of goat cheese on a cracker as part of a salad if you want to do it as a first course. They're just amazing chopped up with some olives as a tapenade. You can make a pasta salad with them Oh, too. yeah, for sure. So that's a great do ahead also. And speaking of pasta salad, if you want, that could bring us into the second course. Well, let's talk about second okay, course. Okay, so second course is you could have a cold pasta salad as a second course. There's 100%. nothing wrong with having a cold side dish as a main course. Yep. Okay, so slow roasted tomatoes, goat cheese on pasta, you've got it made. Yep. People think it's like you're a genius. What if you're not a fan of goat cheese? What else can you, you do? You could put tiny little bocconcini balls. Yep. I don't need dairy at all, so I don't put anything in there. I'll put artichoke hearts that are from the jar chopped up in there. Yep. And then pasta, a little olive oil, salt and pepper, and that's it. Clean, easy, beautiful. Okay, do you have any other main courses you'd like? Yes, I do. So I love having a store-bought or homemade chimichurri on hand all the time, yep. or a salsa verde, you yep. call it the same thing, that doubles as a, a topping for chicken or a grilled fish. So all right. you do is salt and pepper your fish, chicken, or even steak, and then drizzle your chimichurri or your salsa verde right on top, and dinner is made. Yeah, chimichurris are great. And also, you know, you can grow pretty much any herb that you want for a chimichurri in your backyard. Absolutely. And we even have hot peppers. So I will actually, when I'm grilling, I will just go to my backyard and you can use stuff like mint. Like you might not think oh, it would work. for sure. But Carrots. Yeah. And hot peppers and just sort of blend them up. And it's a very light sauce yeah. for, for anything that gets grilled. And all you need is an acid. Yep. Olive oil. Lemon juice. Lemon juice yep. or vinegar if yep. you don't have a fresh lemon on hand. But you can have a fresh lemon because of the margaritas. Yeah, but we don't we don't grow them. 
Right, true Not enough. yet. No greenhouse. I also like to have on hand a bunch of different spices, spice mixtures. Yes. And sometimes I buy them, sometimes I make them. Are you talking about rubs or are you yes. talking about finishing? No, I'm talking about rubs. Thank you for clarifying that. And then all you need to do is bring home the meat yep. or tofu yep. or fish, sprinkle it up, serve it up, pass the salad on the side, a green vegetable that's been steamed earlier. Yes. And you really have dinner made. Yep. Okay. Okay. So that's amazing to have also. And then we'll move into dessert. Sure. Okay. So dessert is also something that I don't want to be slaving over all summer long. Okay. So at the beginning of the summer, I will make a few pie doughs, Mm -hmm. galettes, let's say. So they're in a lump of a dough in your freezer. Yep. And you could throw in, roll it, defrost it, roll it out, throw in fresh fruit, cover it up with your dough and bake it. That's a little bit advanced, but let's get into my favorite, which are ice cream stuffed cannoli shells. Oh, that sounds good. Okay, so I go to the Italian grocery store. I buy cannoli shells, the one they put the mascarpone cheese in, but I don't stuff them with that. I stuff them with ice cream. Okay, do you make your own ice cream? No, I really don't because there's really good ice creams out there. There If you make your own ice cream, which we do, all the power to you, it probably tastes way better. And then you stuff it into the cannoli shells and you freeze that. And then when dessert comes around, All you do is take out a pretty plate, put the stuffed cannoli shells on it, and you have dessert. The cannoli freezes with the ice cream yeah, in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they stay crispy. Do you have to do you put them in a bag? Do you have to separate them? No. So actually, I put them on like a cookie sheet or a tray lined with parchment paper, and I freeze them with a tiny bit of space in between each one. Once they're rock solid frozen, I throw them into Ziploc bags. Okay. I'll make with vanilla, I'll make with chocolate, I'll make whatever you like. Yeah, and that's kid-friendly, too. Oh, it's totally kid-friendly. If you want to get fancy, you could drizzle some chocolate over it. Right. But I, I never get fancy. I just do that. And people love those. You could buy store-bought crepes, which are great. Store-bought crepes? I've never seen They're them. They're really, really good. You could find them. Uh, they usually, I, I usually find them in the Where? vegetable section, believe it or not. Okay. Just sort of sitting there out. And they're little crepes. They're, about, they're a size of like maybe like eight inches wide. Okay. In diameter. You're talking about dessert crepes, yes. not like not like wrappers for wontons. No, no, I'm talking about dessert crepes. Huh, sometimes okay. they're in where the cookies are, and sometimes I find them in the vegetable section. And I freeze ahead ice cream balls, so scooped ice cream, because it's really a pain to scoop ice cream. Yeah. Okay? I freeze those ahead. I make the balls, freeze them on a cookie sheet lined with parchment paper. They are in the freezer. I put them on top of the crepes when it's t- come time to serve dessert. And maybe I have pre-made sautéed bananas sprinkled with a little bit of sugar and dessert is made. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's all great advice. And I'm coming over to your place for the crepes with Perfect. the bananas and the ice cream. Okay. And then we'll we'll do like a crawl. Then we'll go back to my okay, house I for like the drinks. like a pub crawl. There we go. <laughs> that's all the time we have. And thank you for coming in. Thank you, Jamie. Have a great summer. We'll hear back from you later. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, 
visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Carlisle Jansen, is the founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality shop and workshop centre in Toronto. And she's the producer of the Toronto International Porn Festival. She's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. You can watch her TEDx Toronto talk and educational videos at carlislejansen.com. And if you want to reach out to her, you can email her at carlislejansen.com. Carlisle wrote a great article in the June issue of Tonic about attachment theory, and that's what we're going to talk about now. Welcome to the show. Hello. So essentially, everything is my mother's fault. Is that, <laughs> is that it? No. She's listening. <laughs> I, th- I hope she's listening. Who knows? Who could say? What, what, what is attachment theory? Yeah. So um, John Bowlby came up with this in the late 1950s, and he was looking primarily at mothers back yes, in that was. time because they were primarily the caregivers. But, you know, if you were raised primarily by your grandparents or by a father or two moms or whoever, right? It's whoever was influential in your life as a caregiver. And whether you felt safety and security will determine whether you developed well emotionally, socially, and cognitively, and whether you tend to have relationships with good attachment as you grow up or whether some of the things that you experienced when you were younger will carry on into your teenage and adult relationships. Right, because your your first experience with your parent or caregiver mm-hmm. is is your first real life example of love and, yeah, and, and relationship and relationship and yeah, tenderness yeah, right yeah. so wh- how how could that not affect the way sure. you you were like going through life yeah and in particular they looked at like did you feel secure did you feel cared for did you feel comforted in those instances you would have healthy attachments but if you experienced rejection or potentially indifference from your primary caregivers especially when you were in pain you fell down you were feeling sad all of those things then you might have more of an anxious or an avoidant kind of attachment style. Okay. And in your article, you list, uh, you know, different, I, yeah. I guess, different assessments, the, yeah. the type of person you are, category. Yeah, yeah there's and obvi- four main ones. And obviously, you know, it's not cut and dry, no. but, but you know, no. this is sort of a guideline and everybody's going to be listening. Am I that type of person? <laughs> Am I another type of person? And usually, yeah. you know, when you come on the show with these, I always end up like totally on the wrong side of the ledger. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that I'm, I'm somewhat normal on this one. I'm sure my mother does too. Well, um, you know, what's interesting is that, is it, you know, this is good for understanding yourself. It's sometimes good for understanding a friendship that might feel a bit awkward or your your partnership and better understand them. And sometimes everything seems fine. And then and then when a more intense event happens where maybe um, we're in physical danger, we feel rejected, we feel abandoned, uh, we are criticized that's when sometimes it rears its head. And especially if you or somebody else exhibit kind of a reaction that seems a little bit exaggerated, where it feels a bit out of context, yeah. that might mean that they've sort of targeted, it hit some kind of a raw nerve. Struck a nerve, yep. Yep, that is really your core attachment and that that's where it's coming from. So you don't always see it all the time, but if you think about times when you really something more intense happened, what your reaction was, that might be more of a clue. Hmm. 
So what does a secure attachment look like? So a secure attachment is around 50 to 60 percent of people. Right. Um, so we're in the majority, whoever identifies oh, as so that. Oh, so you're in that group, No, huh? we're not necessarily. So they're people who are able to be honest, have openness and equality in their relationships. When they were young, they felt safe to venture out and explore the world. And when they came home, there was also safety and security um, there, which means that they can rely on their partner. They feel like and they can give um, support to their partner as well. They don't take things so personally. They tend to be better at problem solving because they're not so worried about, does my partner love me or not love me? What, you know, looking for signs. Um, And they can also be separate while still feeling connected. They don't feel... They have their own sense of self. Yeah, they don't feel disjointed when when they're separate from their partner. And when it comes to conflict, they tend to be able to navigate that quite well. Of course, there's always struggles, but they're able to not, again, go really in exaggerated responses. And when it comes to sex... People who have secure attachment tend to be able to say what they want. They're able to hear what their partner wants. They're able to offer as best they can what their partner wants without compromising their own needs. Okay, I'm trying to think. Am I in that group? (laughs) We'll have to wait. We'll have to wait till we We go through the rest. Have to ask your mom or your partner. I don't know. No, we're not doing that. (laughs) Absolutely not doing that. The next group that you talk about are anxious, preoccupied. Uh, yes. Attachments. So what they, well, the theory is that what they experienced when they were younger is more of inconsistent security and intimacy. So sometimes it was there, sometimes it wasn't. They tend to look for a partner to complete them. And unfortunately, what that means is that sometimes they'll rush into a relationship that's not really great, but because they feel like they need to have someone to complete them, they will go with someone who's not necessarily so good for them. We all know people like this, right? Yeah. They're, yeah. they're like serial monogamous. They, yeah. they, they, they're not, they can't be on their own. They, yeah. they have to be with somebody yeah. else. Yeah. yeah. And so what they tend to be is they're very hypervigilant. They're always looking for signs of, are you loving me? Or are you abandoning me? Right? Are we together? Or are we not together? Sometimes what that means, they can be kind of clingy. And unfortunately, that fear of abandonment, that jealousy, that clinginess is what drives a partner away. Of course. Because then they don't like that. And so they sometimes will then withdraw or they'll have a big outburst in order to get their partner's attention because that's what they're looking for. They want their partner to reassure them and know that they're there. They're not going to abandon them. And so when it comes to sex, sometimes what they do is they ignore their own needs and they just want to please their partner, right? And that comes to sex and other aspects of the relationship. They just want to please the partner so their partner stays with them. Hmm. The next group that you talk about are the dismissive avoidant attachment yes. types. Yeah. So there's a couple different types of avoidance. So there's dismissive avoidant and they tend to not want to be close because they don't want to feel, they, they don't want to be rejected. And so they can be, uh, they can appear emotionally distant. They try and come off as self-sufficient. They don't want to rely on a partner. And so they're also hypervigilant, but it's different. They're looking to see where their partner's trying to control them. Looking for an excuse to get out. Yeah. And 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 they don't want to be controlled. And so they're like, oh, I don't, I don't want to get too close because again, it's really about the pain of rejection, oddly enough. It's hmm. kind of the paradox. And so when there's turmoil, when there's conflict, they just turn themselves off. They're like, I don't need this. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. I'm okay on my own. And And so when it comes to sex, they tend to enjoy being physical. They enjoy the sensual sides of things, but they don't want to get too close emotionally again because they don't want to get hurt. Hmm. And you mentioned there's a different 
kind of a avoidant attachment. That's fearful avoidant attachment, yes. right? Yeah. And so they are afraid of being too close and too detached. So they're looking for that wow. happy medium. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So as you can imagine, <laughs> yeah. they when they get too close, they get anxious and they feel claustrophobic. And when they uh, are worried that they're uh, being abandoned, then they move closer. And that would drive a partner crazy, I bet. Well, and so their actions are very unpredictable and they tend to have really dramatic relationships. There's a lot of highs, there's a lot of lows. And as a partner, you don't know what to expect, right? You right. don't know whether your partner is going to be looking to come close or they're going to pull away. And it's, it, it's, it's hard. It's hard. I would imagine. So how can we tell what sort of attachment style we have as adults? So there are lots of online tests you can do. Um, there are some really simple ones that might not be super accurate. You can also then reflect on your own experiences and try and notice what happened when I was a kid. How do I interact with my partners? Again, especially when something goes wrong. Right. right. How do I interact then? The other thing is also when a partner asks for more closeness, how do I interact? Right. If I'm secure, then that's great. If I'm defensive, maybe then I'm dismissive avoidant. If I feel either really excited or really claustrophobic, then maybe I'm fearful avoidant. And if I'm anxious, preoccupied, then that request for intimacy will be great. I'll welcome that. But I'm still going to want assurances that you're still here for me. Okay. We only have time for one more question. Yeah. Once we know what sort of attachment style yeah. we own. Mm-hmm. Is there anything we can do about it? <laughs> Is it set like, like, I'm not telling you which one I am, <laughs> but like, let's say I'm one of yeah. those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, uh, can I move on? Right, yeah. <laughs> you can. I mean, people definitely do. And I think that's with all aspects of personality. If you are self-reflective, if you make some conscious effort, if you talk to a partner, a friend, a therapist, if you try and think through this, there's lots of books on it too, and really learn about what's your style, what are your triggers, what are things that make you raw, and try and figure out, okay, what is it that I need in a relationship and how can I express that in a healthy way? Making sure that you value what you want and not compromise that. And, you know, especially if you have an, a non-secure attachment style, trying to find someone who has a secure attachment style. Because you can imagine somebody who is anxious, yeah. <laughs> right, with someone who is fearful is a really awful combination. You end up with pushes and pulls, and that's where you get even higher drama. Okay, well, that's good advice. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But you're going to be back next month, right? Yes, I'll be back. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can listen to this show online at zoomer.ca and you can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us on Facebook at The Tonic Talk Show or at Jamie Busson on Instagram. For great articles written by Megan Horsley, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss exercise for your brain, mindfulness and self-compassion, and the truth about the health risks of electromagnetic fields. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. 
This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.